0: I brought along on my book table a collection of sonnets by our friend, Phil Rosenbaum. None have sold yet. Now, I thought you people were into education and poetry and stuff like that, but I guess maybe I was wrong. But I would encourage you to come up and read some of these and see if you might want to pick this up. It's beautifully bound. Uh, Some of these uh, Holy Week sonnets were originally published in Biblical Horizons number 100 Christendom Essays. So some of you may have read some of them before. But do take a look at this book. It's not easily obtained. And I don't want to take any back. All right. I know you don't believe this. So we have another introductory lecture tonight. No, actually, tonight we'll start into First Corinthians. That long last after many complaints. That's right. I don't blame you. All right, First Corinthians. Um, we've looked at the Church of Corinth in its formation. And I remind you that Sosthenes was... uh, Crispus was the first leader of the synagogue who converted. Then Sosthenes apparently uh, wasn't ferocious enough in his hatred of the Christians, so the Jews beat him up, and now we find that he is converted as well. We want to bear these little facts in mind because they'll be important in a little while. And uh, verses 1 to 3, which we looked at this this morning, say... Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, a testimony of two witnesses, to the church of God that is at Corinth, those who have been set apart, those who have been made holy, those who have been made, given sanctuary access, are allowed to draw near, as the book of Hebrews puts it. Uh, in Christ Jesus, Christ comes first, then Jesus, because it's the body of the church. Uh, it's the environment in which we draw near, and of which Jesus is the head. So the word Christ, referring to the body, the, uh, the assembly of those who are baptized or anointed or made messiahs. Are you a messiah? Yes. Are you a messiah? Yes. Are you a Messiah? Yes, because you're anointed, because you're baptized. Okay? You carry on what Jesus started. You're not going to die for the world, but all the other things he started, we carry on. We have his anointing. We're in Christ. And Jesus is our head. And then he says, called to be saints. Called to have sanctuary access. Gathered together. Gathered together for worship. That's who we're talking to. This letter is to be read to the assembly of those called together as saints, as those who have access to the holy places. Along with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new memorial name. When the Father hears us pray in Jesus' name, He perks up and hears us and listens to us. Jesus is their Lord and our Lord as well. We're all united with them. So He starts off the epistle saying, Yes, we're in unity with all these other churches. They all worship the same Lord we do. So how come you guys are having divisions within your own little church? So the stress on unity is here at the beginning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the full title of the King in whom we are united. Grace and peace. Grace. Uh, that is favor from God. Grace is not a substance that is poured into us like holy ooze. You no, know, that you can get more of. You know, uh, grace is God's favorable disposition toward us. He reminds us of it. God is on our side, and He's given us peace. Peace with God it means we used to be at war with God. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which God loves everybody. There's a sense in which God has a special, discriminating, personal affection for every single human being He ever made, just like He does for every sparrow and every dog. Uh, but God's patience can run out. And uh, G- the gift of Jesus, uh, the benefits of His atonement exist in this world under the firmament which is covered by His blood. But if you die and you haven't come fully into Christ, then you're toast. But there is a sense in which all the human race is at war with God, and those of us who change sides in the war are at peace with God. And that's basically what salvation is. Salvation is to change sides in the war. We no longer march to Satan's orders. We march to the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Sunday morning, we pass in review and we salute Jesus as our King. Okay? This is war. All the psalms are about war. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That sweet psalm about being a sheep in Jesus' flock turns out to be about war. You know, the Philistines are over there. The Philistines are over there. And we get uh, the Lord's Supper in the midst of our enemies. So it's warfare. And uh, we need to bear that in mind. We're at peace with God. Puts us at war with the other side of the antithesis. You people reformed? Yeah? Then you believe in the antithesis. Say, I believe in the antithesis. I believe in the antithesis. You're right, you know. There's them and there's us, and we're going to win. Okay? It's a war. Starts in Genesis. Don't ever forget it. Now we can go to ver- the next paragraph, is verses four to nine. Hear it. I thank my God. And now notice, before we even start, this letter came from Paul and Sosthenes. But the, right away, it's I do this and I do that. It's from Paul, and Sosthenes signs on. He's not actually the author, but he's coming along as the second witness to say Amen. He's adding, he adds his Amen to Paul's letter. So Paul says, I, not we, not me and Sosthenes, but I. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus in the body of the church of which Jesus is the head. That in everything you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you're not lacking any gift eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called, that is gathered, into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you notice, you know, we've got Christ here, we've got Christ Jesus, we've got Jesus Christ, we've got the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've got Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a specific reason why he does each one of those. This isn't random Uh, mumblings from Paul. But since we only have a few lectures, we can't look at all of this, you know. But I want you to notice it. There are no uh, mistakes in Paul's choice of vocabulary here. Verse 4, he says, I thank God, or I thank my God, depending on uh, the Greek text you want to go with. Let's not talk about that. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Grace. The favor of God. Okay? The the stuff, the thing that was given to you is Jesus Christ. You're put in union with Christ Jesus. Christ comes first. Christ means all the anointed community. We are all the body of Christ. Okay? So, it's given to you in the church with Jesus as the head. Okay? In the body of Christ... With Jesus as the head, it's kind of useful for us to see that the Bible thinks this way, that Paul thinks this way, because as Americans and others, yeah, the mixed multitude. We usually, I mean, I came into understanding of Christianity by making a decision for Jesus, and kind of having walks with me and talks with me, relationship with Jesus in the garden alone, and then. Eventually got into the church, and we think that's the normal way, and God honors that. God is very happy to get people saved any way He can. God wants people saved. He wants people on His side. But the normal Christian way to understand is to be in the church, really to be baptized as a baby, grow up in the church, and receive the graces in the midst of the body. Okay? Don't come to Jesus and then eventually get into the church but kind of grow up in the church and meet Jesus there. And so when he says these gifts are given to you in the community of the church in Christ Jesus, not in Jesus Christ, but in Christ Jesus, that order tells you something there. That it's in the community of the saints that you receive the blessings of Jesus. And again, this is important for the theme of this book because there's all these divisions. <laughs> We need to be united and be together uh, in the body, in one body, receiving all these gifts which come when we're together in the anointed community. So I want to stress that here because that's Paul is choosing his words carefully to lay open uh, the way things are supposed to be before he gets into the way things aren't being being or whatever. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given to you in the body of Christ with Jesus as the head in order that it, because in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge you were enriched you were made rich you were made kings look in the old testament priests are not given riches priests are given responsibility over the food of the house of God but when you get to the kings the kings are given talents A talent is a hundred pound bar of gold. If any of you have any lying around and want to get rid of them, I'll take them. Biblical Horizons would be glad to have a hundred pound bar of gold if you have any. That's a lot of gold. okay? And when you you move to the parable of the talents, that's a kingdom parable. Jesus says, you know, that's the kind of riches that you have. Figure it out. What is gold now? $400 an ounce, multiply that by 16, and then by 100, that's how many dollars? American dollars. You have. Double that, and it's the number of Canadian dollars. Okay, okay, just kidding, just kidding. Hey, every time I go to Russia, my dollar's worth less, so I really can't complain. Um, Or I can't, uh, the pot's crawling the kettle black if I say anything about Canadian money. But here you are, that's a lot, that's a lot. That's the kind of riches we're being talked about here. We're kings. We're made kings. No, people didn't get to be kings in Christ, but Jesus is resurrected. That's the gospel, as we'll see in a minute. The gospel is that Jesus is resurrected and that he's king. And if we're in union with him, we're kings and queens. And we have talents. Talents doesn't mean your ability to play the musical instruments, although it can. Or paint or whatever, but primarily it's a pretty downright riches type of thing here. You got a big bank account, okay, spiritually speaking. And you have all speech and all knowledge. You're enriched in Him. You're enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Now, I understand what being enriched in all knowledge means. It means I know everything. I know it all. I know everything about everything. So do you. You know everything about everything. Because you're with Jesus, and Jesus knows everything about everything. Now, you and I might have a conversation, and I might say, I believe in a real presence in the sacrament. And you would say, well, we're going to do this until He comes, so I believe in a real absence. And so then we can have a fight. But the fact is, both of us know the truth. We just haven't quite come to it yet. Okay? And when you understand that we have all knowledge, then there's no reason to have any divisions. Because even if I don't see all the knowledge that I have, and you don't see all the knowledge that you have, and we're not quite sure that we see things the same way, by faith alone, We have all knowledge. And by faith alone, we can get along with each other. That's where he's going with this. Okay? And you have all speech. And in this book, it's got a lot of stuff about speech. There's stuff about tongues and teaching and prophecy and women keeping silent in the church and uh, women keeping silent in the church, silence of women in the church. And... uh, uh, I'm just preaching it the uh, patriarchal way. <laughs> we we, will, we won't. Yeah, I'm saying... Please, that was just a joke. But yeah, this language stuff is important because speech takes the kingdom out. Okay, your job is to carry the kingdom out. What was that gift of speaking in other languages about? Why do you need to speak in other languages? Because you're going to go someplace else, right? <laughs> That's what that gift of tongues means in Acts. Acts is uh, more about the foot. Luke is the gospel of the foot, traveling. Acts is more of it. The first gift, the signal miracle is, speak in foreign languages. You don't need any foreign languages if you stay at home. The gift of foreign languages means go. Okay? You know that uh, Isaiah 6 Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Lo, this has touched your lips. Who can I send and who will go? That's the three points. Woe, lo, and go. Okay, go. It's important. Speech. But what are they using their speech for? They're arguing with each other. It's not what speech is for. They have all speech. They have all the right kind of language to use in all the different situations. You just have to discover it. But it's like a present... It's got all these different gifts in it, and you have it. It's yours. And you just have to open it and pull out all the things that are in there and learn how to use them. But you already have it. So you ought not to be fighting with each other. That's what he's going to get to here. Well, so in everything, we have been enriched with him. We've got a big bank account, and we have all the language ability that we need, and we have all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was concerned, confirmed in you. Christ is that big word. It means the body of Christ. Church and Jesus together. The testimony concerning the body of Christ is confirmed in you. So, what is he saying? He's saying that we have all these things in connection with Christ. In connection with the Messianic community of which Jesus is the head. You have all these things in the church. Break off from the church and you won't have these things. Okay? The riches are found by sticking together and learning to get along with each other in the church and one anothering one another in the church and in living the way the Trinity lives. as Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself for the glory of the other two. Each member of the Trinity esteems the other two better than himself. That's how we're supposed to live because that's how God lives in Himself. And so, if we live that way, then we'll be looking for what's best about the other guys. That's the way God is. That's the way we're supposed to be. That's the attitude you're supposed to have in the body. Function that way and you have all these gifts because you get everybody else's gifts. If you're the second person of the Trinity, your gift is language. You give language to the Father and the Spirit, and now they can speak, so so to speak. I mean, this is all an eternal thing, so we have to use time language. You receive back from the Father the gift of personality, and you receive back from the Spirit the gift of life. And that's where all these gifts are. They're in the exchange with one another. You have all these things, but you have them only in the church as you exchange them and manifest them one another ring one another. So If you have the gift of healing and somebody else doesn't, then you can lay hands on them. And God can act. Don't, don't assume that you know what I mean by that, but that's real. Some people, God seems to work through them more often than other people when it comes to laying hands on sick people and praying for them. That's a gift within the body that needs to be exchanged around. So it's Christ, the body as a whole, is the environment in which these riches, all speech and all knowledge, exist. The testimony that was given to them was concerning Christ, the church, the body. And all this stuff is going to be big in in 1 Corinthians. So that you're not lacking any gift. You, this community, you don't lack anything. You have everything in Christ. You have it together. Okay? And then he says, Eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see why I've spent some time the last couple of days talking about the historical context of this. He's not talking about what we call the second coming, because those people were not waiting for the second coming. They knew from the book of Matthew that all nations were supposed to be discipled and that Jesus would come at the end of history and and end the entire world. But they also knew, as we saw the other day, from Matthew and Mark, which they had those two books by this time anyway, and from the teaching of the apostles, that the end of the world that was right on the horizon for them was just a few years away. God was going to end the old creation, all the way back to Genesis 1 in some particulars. Genesis 1 says that God made the sun, moon, and stars as signs, as symbols, to regulate the seasons or religious worship times of the year. Your Bible says for signs and seasons, but the word season there means festival times. And all the way... under the law and even back to Cain and Abel it's by observing the sun and the months of the year and the vernal equinox and the new moons that you know when to worship that goes back to Genesis 1 that's being changed okay so the the political order the, the structure of the whole first creation is changing this is a big change and it's one of the things that's causing controversy in Corinth they don't know what it means That's what they're looking for, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't say awaiting the coming, awaiting the revelation, not the revelation of Jesus, but the revelation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What is the event that will display and reveal the kingship of Jesus Christ publicly and openly? What are they waiting for? Yeah, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, why is that? It's because that's what all the prophets do. All the prophets. They all say, I know I know, you guys don't quite trust what I'm saying. You know, I'm telling you about stuff that's going to happen in the future, and you're saying, how do we know that we can trust you, Jeremiah? How do we know that we can trust you, Isaiah? And he says, well, this is how you know. Because in just a few years, this city is going to be destroyed. Now, go back and read. Let's, leave, let's just read a couple of them. Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7. You'll see this. The message of the prophets is always, in a few years, this or that city is going to be destroyed. And that is the proof that what I say is true. When that comes true you'll know that everything else I said is also true. Isaiah 7, verses 5 uh, to 8. Uh, God gives this prophecy to, for Isaiah to pass on. We're talking about Syria and so forth. He says, it shall not stand, nor shall it come pass. for the head of Assyria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Then he says... Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. Oh, Isaiah, give me a break. 65 years. You sure it's not 66, Isaiah? How do you know it's going to be 65 years and the kingdom of Ephraim is going to be wiped out? Doesn't look like it's going to be wiped out to me. It looks to me like we've got a lot of atomic bombs and everything else over here. You can't wipe us out. We've got weapons of mass destruction. Over here in Ephraim, we're not going to be wiped out in 65 years. Why should we believe you, Isaiah, when you say 65 years? Well, here's how. Verse 14. Therefore, the Master Himself will give you a sign, Ahaz, king. Behold, a young woman. It's a neutral word here, which can mean virgin or uh, or not. So it. it This prophecy has two extensions in Isaiah, one pointing to Jesus and one immediately pointing to Isaiah's own family. Behold, a young woman will be with child and bear a son, and shall call his name. God is with us. He will eat curds and honey with respect to his knowing to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Yahweh will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come to pass since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. God will bring the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day that Yahweh will whistle for the fly that's in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle on the steep ravines and on the ledges of the cliffs and on the thorn bushes and on the watering places. Now that's probably not real clear as I just read it through. But what he's saying, a baby's going to be born, and when he's about four or five years old, uh, at that time, the king of Assyria is going to come in. And when you see that happen, then you'll know that what I said about those 65 years, that's going to happen too. Well, in the next chapter, this comes to pass. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah, to fulfill this, he says, I approached the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, And the Lord said to me, name him Meharshahalhashbaz, The name that all of the men want to name their sons. (laughs) Fortunately, our wives won't let us. Okay, name him swift of the booty, speedy as the prey. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Judgment will fall on these two cities, Damascus and Samaria. And the judgment on those cities will be proof that Isaiah, everything else he says, is true. You can look at Jeremiah. You can look at the prophet who talks about Jerusalem this way. He says, you'll know that what I'm saying is true because I'm telling you the city's going to be destroyed. When it is, you'll know everything else I said is true. Uh, Ezekiel same thing. You don't want to listen to me right now? Fine. Just in a couple of more years the city's going to be destroyed. I'm telling you exactly how it's going to be destroyed. In fact, I'm going to tell you when it's going to be destroyed. And when you see that happen, you better believe the rest of the things I said to you. How would I know that? Nahum same thing. Jesus same thing. How do we what's the proof that Jesus is king? We would tend to say his resurrection from the dead. And that's true, but that was a private event. Paul says about the most people who ever saw the resurrected Christ were 500. That's not a a world, open in the world, revelation event. And Jesus himself in the Gospels does not go around saying, I'm going to be raised from the dead over and over again in one parable after another. It comes up. But the main thing he points to is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He says that's the big event. That is going to reveal that I am King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and not, you're not just going to have to go around and say no. The, you know, we didn't steal his body; he really was raised from the dead, and all the lies and all the controversies—they're going to be put to rest. Because in eighty, seventy, after forty years, you will have been telling people this city is going to be just destroyed because Jesus said so, and when it is, everybody will know. The destruction of the city is the sign of the kingship of Jesus Christ, which is what the gospel is. The gospel isn't that God saves people. God's been saving people ever since Genesis. The gospel is not justification by faith. People have been justified by faith ever since Genesis. The gospel is the new thing that's happened, which is the resurrection and the kingship of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in just a few minutes. Okay? So the revelation, the proof of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is something that they are eagerly awaiting. They're looking forward to it. All these people who have laughed at them and said, you're stupid, they're going to shut up in the year 70 when that city is destroyed. They're going to say, oh, huh, that's what you said would happen, isn't it? Or not. I mean, how many times have we told the Hal Lindsey people, you know, they say, he's coming in 1980, and he doesn't. Then he's coming in 1990, and he doesn't. Then he's supposed to come in 88, and he didn't. There were 88 reasons why he would come in 88, and he didn't. You know, every time he doesn't come, you'd think these people would change their theology, and they never do. They just postpone it. But there is a revelation going on there. You know, you're obviously wrong. uh <laughs> You know, at some point, you know, it ought to sink in that this is not the right way to read the Bible. Well, but this this is better than that. You know, that's what they are eagerly awaiting for, and God is going to confirm them to the end, blameless in the day of the kingship of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ again is that day to which they look, as Hebrews says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Stick together, exhort one another, as you see the day drawing near. Now, we can't see the second coming drawing near, you see, because we don't have any specific signs. We just know that Jesus is coming back, okay? But they had all these specific signs to watch for in connection with that first century event. So when Paul, in Hebrews, says, you know... Stick together, don't be like those Corinthians and divide up. Hang together as you see the day drawing near, it's something right on the horizon. And this is two, okay? Some kind of judgment is going to come. And he says, we will be confirmed in the day of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, His kingship day. Alright? When it's plain that He's in charge in AD 70. God is faithful through whom you were called or gathered into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our King. Now, there's something we need to stop and think about here just a little bit. Because it says, he says, I promise you, all of you Corinthians out there, y'all baptized, every single one of you, I promise you, you're going to be confirmed to the end. And God is faithful, and he is going to see to it. So you can relax. You don't have to do any good works. You don't have to be faithful. You don't have to come to church anymore because no matter what you do, God is faithful, and Jesus is going to confirm you to the end. No, that's not what he says, okay? Right at the end of the epistle, he says just the opposite. This is what we need to think about together just for a minute or two. Initially reading this, it looks like he's saying every single one of you is going to be confirmed to the end. You're all going to be found blameless in the day that Jesus comes back in a few years. Um, And God is faithful and he's going to do this for you. And then he ends up and says, if any of you don't love the Lord, let him be accursed. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. If they're all guaranteed to be found on the great day at the end, at the end of the old creation, and they're all going to be confirmed blameless, then what about these people who are falling away and who are cast out? Well, this is where people get all worried about this. But the Bible gospel message is very simple. If you stick with Jesus, He'll stick with you. Uh, Salvation is in Christ. We're saved by being with Jesus. We're saved by being with God the Father. And God the Father is absolutely faithful to everybody who stays with him. And Jesus absolutely guarantees and secures the preservation of the saints for every saint who stays with him. But folks, if you decide that you don't want to be a saint anymore and you reject him and you go away, he may pursue you, he may let you go. There's no security, there's no eternal security outside of Christ. There's no perseverance of the saints. There's no perseverance of people who were saints for a while and then stopped being. The New Testament's full of information about this, not just in Hebrews, but in the parable of the sower. People spring up and receive the kingdom with joy and then fall away. Jesus says, stay in the vine. Don't be a branch that's broken out of the vine. Paul says, stay in the olive tree. Don't get broken out of the olive tree. It's not hard. There's nothing you have to do except stay with Jesus. Stay with the church. Don't go away. But if you go away, you have moved outside of Christ. You've moved outside of the sphere of the promises. And then you're in danger. Okay? So there's no threat to your security to understand that it's not your faith that saves you. It's not your decision that saved you. It's hanging with Jesus that saves you. It's being with Jesus. And you're with Jesus when you're in the church. You're with Jesus when you are with the community that is his body. You're with Jesus when you're following along and walking with him. And when you sin and stumble, you say, I'm sorry. And he says, okay. And he reaches down his hand and picks you back up. And you continue on walking with Jesus. You can't, you can't go to hell if you do that. You have nothing to worry about. Absolute assurance of salvation, but assurance of salvation is with Jesus. So these promises here, you'll be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of Jesus Christ, which for us, you see, is the second coming. This is still relevant to us. It's not immediately on the horizon for us, but it's going to happen someday, and God is the promises are still there, okay? God is going to confirm us to the end, blameless in the day of Jesus Christ, and God is faithful and he will see to it. All you have to do is stay in the same room with him. I say this because it's weird how people get accused of all kinds of strange things. By saying this, I mean it's like our our real our real salvation is on the fact that I can remember back 20 years ago on a certain day that I made a decision and drove a stake in the ground and that's what I'm trusting to make me to put me into heaven. Well that's not right. Okay. You just need to stay with Jesus and you'll be in heaven. That's the gospel. Well, that's that's the message here. Um, God can't be faithful to us if we run away. Our relationship with God is a personal relationship. It's not a magical relationship. God doesn't look and say, Oh, well, these guys checked off the box. They walked the aisle. They believed, for, they, believed they made a decision at a certain point. And so now, like some kind of computer, I have to save them. No, our relationship with God is personal. He's a person. Three persons. We talk to him, he talks to us, we fellowship with him through his body, and you hang around and you continue to be in a personal relationship with Jesus, and when you die, the relationship continues. I'm sure you all know that, but I need to say it. Okay, and one other thing that's here. He says, God will confirm us to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That implies that there is a last judgment. That justification, our declaration of our blamelessness, happens at the end of time. Now, there's a big debate over this too, and there ought not to be because there are clearly... Two justifications in the Bible. We are justified apart from anything we are when we're baptized, when we come to faith in Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring. Okay? Justified completely apart from works, or better, apart from who we are. Jesus did it all, it's given to us free of charge. But then God transforms us and makes us into different kind of people, and the final justification, the final judgment, God looks at who we have become. He doesn't look at whether we've done a bunch of good works. This is never about works, ever. God is never interested in checking off a bunch of brownie points and works. God is interested in the quality of human beings. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you becoming? And at the end, will you be found as the right kind of person? Because... You hung around with Jesus and he rubbed off on you. Because you ate his body and drank his blood. Because you prayed to him and you talked to him. Because you hung around his people. And that's part of what we trust. We trust what God is doing to us. Paul says in Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, the day of Christ Jesus. Part of the gospel is that God has started a good work in us, and he's going to perfect it, and when we are standing at the last judgment, God is going to say, you're the right kind of person to go into heaven. He's not going to say, you're a filthy, degenerate sinner, and the only reason I'm going to let you into heaven is because Jesus died for you. That's the only reason you were let into the church in the first place. But at the last judgment, he's going to say, Jesus has done some good works with you, and you have become the kind of person that I want to let into heaven because you're in Christ. Now, you say, does the Bible teach two justifications like that, one apart from works and another one that involves who we have become? Sure it does. It teaches it in Numbers chapter 19, and I'm not going to turn there because you can do it later on. But in Numbers 19, it says that death spreads to all men. And if a, de- a person dropped dead in this room right now, everybody in this room would be dead. Symbolically dead. That's the, what the word unclean means. You would contract uncleanness and you'd be dead, and you would have to be resurrected symbolically. And you are resurrected twice. You're resurrected on the third day and on the seventh day. There are two resurrections in Numbers 19. They take the water with the ashes of the heifer in it, and they sprinkle you on the third day, And then again on the seventh day. Now, why? There are two resurrections. There are two places where a person dead in trespasses and sins is uh, declared justified or resurrected. Those things are pretty much synonymous in the Bible. New life and being declared free of death, free of judgment of death. See, you're justified. Justification means you're no longer under the sentence of death. So deliverance from death is connected with justification. Why are you resurrected twice? Well, it doesn't really say. It just gives this ritual. Every time a person dies, if you touch his corpse, if you're in the same room with his corpse, until he's buried in the ground, you contract death. And you have to be resurrected twice, once on the third day, and again on the seventh day, and only then can you come back in You say, well, why? Why, Yahweh? Why is there this rule? Well, we're not told, but it's just like all the rest of the rituals. You live with it in a while, and you begin to figure it out. Now, actually, Numbers 19 is the last chapter before the 40 years of wandering. And during the 40 years of wandering, there were a whole lot of dead bodies. And so they did this ritual a whole lot of times. And so they might have begun to understand it. Now, we know that through a lot of Israelite history, they weren't doing this ritual very much. But after the exile, the Jews became Torah, Torah, Torah. They became real interested in doing everything the Scripture says. So, by the time the first century, when Paul writes, and when Jesus says in John 5 that there are going to be two resurrections, one when you're saved, and one when your body is raised at the end of time, these people have all been living with this for a long time, and they've begun to figure it out. Every time somebody around you dies, you have to do this, and you begin to figure it out. You know, being given resurrection on the third day, that has nothing to do with anything connected with me, but then I have four more days to live, and I've already been resurrected, but I haven't completely been resurrected. And you begin to meditate on that, and you begin to have an understanding that is the same as what I'm saying. God comes to us. It's the same as the difference between Passover and the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Passover, we're just out having a party and paying attention to nothing, and this lamb is dying for us. But later on, when we come to the Day of Atonement, we're supposed to afflict our souls and go along with the animal when he dies uh, so that we are, are participating in it. That same kind of philosophy is here. When we're saved the first time, it's not through anything we did. But God puts us into the kingdom, so now we can start to do things. Now we can start to grow. We are taken out of the old Adamic generation, and we're put into the new Christian regeneration. The new life that comes in Jesus, and then we start to grow. And when we come to the final judgment, God looks at how we've grown, and what kind of person we've become. Not what good works we've done, as if he's counting up a tally, but he looks to see if we have become a transformed person. Now you may say, I don't think I'm transformed very much. Well, you don't have to be transformed very much. You just have to be transformed. Are you on the road? Are you still on the road that God put you on when you were saved, when you were baptized as a baby, when Jesus said, you're mine now. The father is your father. I'm your big brother you're part of my bride, you belong to me, this baby is mine, you're mine. Are you continuing to grow up and be Jesus' young person, Jesus' man, Jesus' woman, continuing on that road? Well then, the Father's going to look at you at the, at the end of time and say, you're just the kind of person I want in heaven. You're there because Jesus died for you and put you on the road you're also here because you've continued on the road and you've become a different person. God isn't interested in your good works. God is interested in you becoming a new kind of person who does good works. But the works themselves aren't important. The person is important. So that's that's what's here, you see. There is this justification that's coming, this day of Jesus Christ, and we need to be found blameless on that day, confirmed In a situation where God won't blame us for things because he's satisfied that God, who began a good work, is continuing. And we're happy and we're continuing to stay in that. You understand what I'm saying here? You can't lose your salvation if you stay with Christ. But you do become a transformed person, a different kind of person than you would have been if you had been left in Adam and had not been in Christ And that's what God looks at and God is pleased to see on the day of judgment. Even Jesus himself will be judged on the day of judgment. The father committed a kingdom into his care. And at the end, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful son. On the cross, Jesus died as a slave. And God said, well done, good and faithful servant. But now he's a son. He's been put in charge of the world. Don't think that Satan is going to be able to stand up at the end of history and say, you weren't able to pull it off, were you? That ain't going to happen. Jesus is going to accomplish everything he was going to accomplish, and he will be vindicated on the day of judgment. And all the people who scoff at Christianity, all the Muslims who say that our religion is not the true religion, their mouths will be stopped on the day of judgment. Jesus will be publicly justified and vindicated. And we will too. So there is this future coming, this, and we should look forward to it. In, in, in Romans chapter eight, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Well, do people do that? Have you and your churches ever been lied about? I guess probably not, because none of you stand for anything, right? Well, if you stand for anything, they lie about you. So they constantly trouble over in some place in Idaho. You know? Guys trying to do what's right and people getting on the internet and trying to make them out to be as bad as possible. I look forward to the day of vindication. All the lies that were said about me will be proved false. God will look at my sins and say, Jesus paid for those. And as for the things that you did that stood for me and the thing, people who lied about you, I'll be justified and vindicated against them. That's a, a thing to look forward to. Amen. <laughs> All right. So that's, that's everybody in the New Testament time understands this. You spent your whole life going through this two-resurrection, two-justification ritual. It's part of the warp and woof of your thinking. It's the way that Jesus talks when he says there will be a final judgment. You know, I think sometimes in some of our theologies, there is no final judgment. It was supposed to all already have happened, and there's nothing waiting. No, of course there's something waiting. And uh, vindication of the saints is waiting. Well, let's see if we can go through uh, the next paragraph real quick here. In verses 10 to 17, Paul starts in on them. Okay. He's told them they have all the gifts. Now he's telling them that they're kind of misusing those gifts a little bit. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's pulling in the heavy guns here. He's calling their attention to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That you all speak the same thing. And that there be no schisms or divisions among you. but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment or opinion. I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people whoever they are, that there are quarrels among you. Uh Uh-oh. What I mean is this. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been torn into pieces? Has Christ been cut in half? What is it in the law if something is cut in half? What is that? That's death. If I just reached down and tore you in half, you think you'd be dead? Yep. I'll clue you in. If you get ripped in half, you're dead. He's saying the church is this church is dead. If if you if this is going on, your church is dead. You need a resurrection. Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I personally didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else because Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made empty. He says in verse 10 to begin with that he wants them all to speak the same thing. My Bible says I want you all to agree, but out in the margin it says speak the same thing. Remember, they were enriched in all speech. Now their speech needs to be the same. The idea is that they're chorally speaking, just like we do in church, when we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and everybody says it together. Okay, Uh, Saying the same thing together, singing the same thing together, is an indication of unity. But he says there are these divisions that have come apart come about. And the curse of the covenant is to be cut in half, and he says Christ, the body of Christ, the church, is being cut in half. So it's dead. So death and resurrection then become a major theme in this epistle. Resurrection can only come when there is reunification. He wants them to be of the same mind and of opinion because unity a belief at a certain level is important. doesn't mean that everybody has to agree on the ex-synion of Christ. But it does mean that everybody has to be agreed on some basics. Now in verse 11 he says that Chloe's people have tattled on him. Not really. It's unclear whether Chloe's people is a household in Corinth that is reporting this stuff, or if it's some people in Ephesus where Paul is writing from, Chloe's household, has received information. He says, I was just informed by Chloe's people, whoever they are and wherever they are, that there are quarrels, and you divide it up into the Paulites, the Appolites, the Peterites, and those who say, well, I'm of Christ, you know. I've got some special gift of tongues, and uh, I speak in margin, and that shows that I am really of Christ. And then he starts in on this baptism thing. And he says, I didn't baptize anybody but Crispus, Gaius, and Stephanus. Well, there's a certain natural aspect of this that we ought to grant before we go on. Any number of people that I've known over the years and that you've known, and you yourself, if you're an older person who became a Christian or who was quickened in his faith by, say, Billy Graham or Al Martin or somebody else, you tend to be loyal to that person. You tend not to think the worst of them, okay? I know fellows who were evangelized in the army, and they just always looked to the guy that witnessed to them. And when the guy that witnessed to them fell out of the faith and became an apostate, it was real hard for these guys not to fall out of the faith and follow them. It's just a natural thing that we are loyal to those who speak the word of truth to us and who baptize us. So there is an understandable psychology here, but it's gone way too far, says Paul. Paul says, you need to understand the person who baptizes you is Jesus. Jesus uses the hands of other people, but he's the baptizer. And he says, I didn't bapt- I didn't personally baptize anybody but these three leaders. And then apparently, he had left it to them to baptize everybody else. He says, God didn't send me to baptize. That is, he didn't send me to go around and be the one personally to baptize people. Don't read this wrong, you know. Uh, our evangelical brothers who don't really like the sacraments for very much, they'll say, well, Christ didn't send me to baptize, <laughs> but to preach the gospel, you know. No, that's not his point, okay. Baptism is real important to Paul and to the New Testament. He's saying, I wasn't, it's not my calling to go around and baptize each person. You know, I brought the gospel, I baptized a, a, three of the main leaders of the community. Crispus, who was a leader of the synagogue. Gaius, Romans 16, 23. We find out he's a very wealthy man and the church meets in his home. And Stephanus, another wealthy leader who's referred to in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. These men are leaders, Paul baptized them, and apparently they baptized other people, or they set up baptism for other people. The New Testament, the Bible, is not terribly interested in who does the sprinkling. Now, in the Reformed churches, we've gotten to the point where we say, well, only a minister should do it. Only a minister should supervise the Lord's Supper. And we link the Lord's Supper with baptism, and we say only a minister should do baptism. But the New Testament doesn't ever teach that. Uh, circumcisions were done by anybody in the Old Testament. The various baptisms of the Old Testament were done by anybody. Um, there are some theological arguments for normally having pastors do the baptism. But actually what you see in the New Testament is pretty much people were baptized on the spot by whoever talked to them. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion that has gone on back and forth over that. And I I think the discussion will continue and let each be assured in his own mind. Let's not discuss it here. What I want to point out is that what Paul is saying is baptism is important. It's not important whether I do it or somebody else does it. And whoever that other person may be, an elder, a minister, or even another layman, is not even in the text here. All right? Then he says, The good news is what I was supposed to proclaim, which includes baptism. To preach the gospel, the good news, not in wisdom of speech, not in clever language, not with really great apologetics, not with uh, skilled rhetoric. The fact is, the simple truth is what convicts people. And there's a sense in which the cross of Christ can be made void by apologetics because the cross is a scandal. And maybe we'll talk about that just a little bit, but it's the burden of Dr. Van Til and others in our century to try to point this out. If you try to make Christianity reasonable to an unbeliever, you're avoiding the scandal of the cross. And so there has to be a way to talk to unbelievers that is not compromising the gospel. And uh, that's been a very controversial thing in this century. But uh, as a Van Tilian, I'm not backing off of it. You won't make me back off of it. And at the end here, he says, he's there to give out the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? We, uh, because the gospel is not that God saves people. Sorry, it's not. You know, now we use the word gospel that way. I'm not gonna, it's okay to do that. Say, would you like to know the gospel? You know, God loves you. Uh, God created you and had a wonderful plan for you, but you're a sinner, you're estranged from God, but God has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, and if you put your faith and trust in Him and come into the church and are baptized, you can experience the good news that you can be saved. Well, that's not exactly what the New Testament or the Bible means by the good news, because Adam could have said that to Eve. (laughs) He couldn't have said the word Jesus, but he could have said the Lord offers this way of salvation to you. It's not the new thing. The gospel is a new message about a change that's taken place in history. So God has been justifying people by faith alone uh, all through time. And he's been saving people all through time. The gospel is that Jesus, a man, has now come and done what Adam didn't do. And is now resurrected from the dead and has ascended to heaven and is sitting on the throne and is ruling the world. And the entire world has changed. The good news is that justice has now been established in the world. Okay? The Psalm 24 points to this. I'll, I'll quote it for you in something of a paraphrase. It says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up ye everlasting doors. Well, Gates don't have heads. What that means is, lift up your heads and stand tall. Lift up your heads means, hey, take courage. Jesus uses it this way. When you see these things happen, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads and stand tall, all of you who are waiting in the gates for judgment to come. Be lifted up, you doorways into the future, because the glorious King is coming. Who is this glorious King? Yahweh, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. So, lift up your heads and stand tall, all of you who are waiting for justice in the gates of the city. Because the glorious King is coming in and He's going to vindicate you and, and bring justice for you. He's going to protect the poor and He's going to put down the mighty from their seats. He's going to turn the world upside down. And He's going to do good things for those who are righteous. And He's going to punish the wicked. That's the gospel. That history has changed. And that finally... A man has done what Adam was supposed to do, and that man has been resurrected from the dead, and he's come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's been made king of kings and lord of lords, and he's in charge. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. I'm going to close with this, but this is the gospel that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... That I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. What is this gospel? For I deliver to you as of first importance, number one importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures is really what that means, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures in accordance with the Scriptures. The resurrection is the new and amazing news. That's what it is in the book of Acts. That's what it is here. It's the new life, the new life in the new community that you enter ritually by baptism or by faith, whichever comes first. You remain in that kingdom. That's the good news that this new kingdom has come, that all nations are to be discipled, not just the nation of Israel, that all nations are to be baptized. Uh, not just Israel who went through the Red Sea and was baptized. That's the good news, okay? It's this kingdom news, this new creation. And so all of this is preliminary to everything else he's going to say in this book. How can you be living in this new creation? where everything is resurrected and you're all united to Jesus and God the Father and you're in the fellowship of the Trinity who get along with each other perfectly <laughs> and then have all these divisions and all these other problems. So it's, that's the context in which he's going to discuss everything else. I think I, I think I ran out the clock. Uh, before I stop, let me uh, mention again, we're going to show this movie Metropolitan at... I don't know. 8.45. Okay. It is a version of Mansfield Park by uh, Jane Austen. It's interesting. Kids wouldn't be interested in it. It's not an action flick. It's a bunch of conversation. But uh, it's very good. And we'll discuss it a little bit too. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we get to live on this side of the kingdom, that we get to live and actually see that your plan has come to fulfillment. We ask that you would help us to hang with you, to stay with Jesus Christ all the days of our lives, and to be found in him, and to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of time, uh, because we have become the kind of people you want us to be. Continue to remake us in Jesus' image If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.